We are in the closing segment of this really lengthy sermon series. Book of Philippians, only four chapters, and somehow or another I've come up with 15 messages out of it. How about that? But we're going to close it today. And, uh, um, you know, <laughs> have, have you ever noticed that sometimes life refuses to cooperate with you the way you think it should go? Anybody? Well, it seems as if life sometimes even goes in reverse instead of going forward. And by that, I mean that it seems as if the more one tries to correct life, the worse that it can become. I have an example of this that I want to share with you. It's kind of a, an amusing example, but uh, uh, this was taken from a classified ad in a small-town newspaper years ago. And it's a classic example of trying to correct a mistake only to make it worse. Uh, every time the editor of the newspaper would try to correct his error, he only made it a little bit worse. Here's how it goes. Um, on Monday in the Monday paper, R.D. Jones placed an ad that says, For sale, a sewing machine. Phone 948-0707 after 7 p.m. And ask for Mrs. Kelly, who lives with him, cheap. (laughs) Appalled, Mr. Jones demanded a correction be printed in the Tuesday paper. Here's how it read. Notice, we regret having aired on R.D. Jones' ad yesterday. It should have read, one sewing machine for sale, cheap. Phone 9480707 and ask for Mrs. Kelly who lives with him after 7 p.m. Well, as you can see, it's only getting worse. So in a further effort to correct their gaffe, the editor made yet another attempt in the Wednesday edition. He wrote in this edition, notice, R.D. Jones has informed us that he has received several annoying phone calls due to the error made in his classified ad yesterday. His ad stands correct as follows. For sale, R.D. Jones has one sewing machine, cheap, for phone 9480707, and ask for Mrs. Kelly who loves with him. <laughs> Thursday's paper. Notice, I, R.D. Jones, have no sewing machine for sale because I smashed it. Don't call my phone number as I've disconnected my phone. I've not been carrying on with Mrs. Kelly until yesterday. She was my housekeeper, but she quit. (laughs) See what I mean? Sometimes it seems the more you try to make it right, the worse it becomes. And one of the things that, you know, it's, it's amazing to me how different sermon series can trigger different things in me depending upon what I'm going through in my life and, and, and when I bring these sermon series to you. But over the course of the past 15 weeks in which I've been preaching this message, the thing that has stood out to me perhaps more than anything else from the book of Philippians is that a person can go on even when they think that they've blown it. And as one who has blown it more often than I care to mention, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that God's love can sustain us even when we feel like we've messed up so bad that God could never use us again. I can't speak for anyone else, but I I, I believe that we are probably people who struggle with getting things right. And I, I know I, I deal with that in my, lo- my own life. And, and so when I come to this book of Philippians, and this time for whatever reason, uh, that's what really ministered to me is, you know, Terry, there are a lot of things that you're going through in your personal life that, that uh, I, I've described the situation to you with my best friend. Uh, I've, I've thought, you know, some of the things that he's told me, maybe I really... I really blew it years ago, and it's caused him to go down the wrong path. And, and so I've been struggling with this for like a year and a half. And so I think God just dropped this all into my, 
into my life at this time, just so that I could say and come to the conclusion that, yeah, I may have blown it, but God's still in control. God's still on the throne, and God is still able to make something beautiful out of a mess. This is such a great book. It's such a such a great letter. Probably of all of the Apostle Paul's writings, this would be number one on my list of favorites. Chapter one, Paul says that there's joy in living, and it's all as a result of Jesus. Chapter two, he gives us examples of, of joy in serving because Jesus is our great example. Chapter number three, he we're told to, to exhibit joy when we share our lives with the ultimate goal being that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And I'm looking forward to that day, amen? And then you come to chapter four, the closing chapter, and we discover that there is a joy in resting in the Lord. The only way that we'll find contentment in our life is through Jesus. Maybe you've noticed in this study that it contains some of the most often quoted verses in all of the scriptures. Uh, I've, often, I've often heard people quote verses from the Bible and, and that they, many times they're from this book of Philippians and the amusing thing to me about it is they quote these verses and they don't even know where they're found. But as I said, many of them are in this, this great letter. Let me just give you a couple of examples. And if I start to quote some from the King James, you'll have to excuse me because that's the way I learned it. But Paul said in chapter 1, verse number 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Christ Jesus. And Paul wrote those words while chained to a Roman soldier. In circumstances that would last for the next two years, the last two years of his life. I believe that's a verse that, if nothing else, every parent, every parent ought to hold that onto that verse. He that has begun a good work in your child will complete it. You know why I say that? Because I, I, I saw that in my own life. At a, at a time when I was struggling, I... A person very close to me, her name's Brenda, kind of held on to this verse along with a couple of others. He who has begun that work in me is going to complete it. What a, what a great verse. You move to chapter 1, verse number 21, and it says, Paul says, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, wow, what a great passage of scripture. You've heard me refer to it many times uh, over the course of this sermon series. But he begins in five, uh, verse 5 with this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yet another one, chapter 3 verses 12 through 14, Paul says... Not that I've already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on. I, I, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. <laughs> and then you've heard my translation of chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. I, I hope you still remember it. It said, worry about nothing. Come on now. Pray about everything. 
With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And then probably the two most often quoted verses from this passage occur in chapter 4, 13, where it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and verse number 21, which says, anybody? My God shall supply all your needs. According to his riches and glory. You see what I mean? How often have you heard those verses quoted? Probably some of the the most often quoted verses in all of scripture. So having heard all of those and having heard all of these 15 messages, how do we move on? The sad thing about great letters, whether it's to you or whether it's to one of the churches that Paul is writing to here in, in the New Testament is that all letters must eventually come to an end. How many of you ever got a letter from your boyfriend or girlfriend? I remember, man, when I had a girlfriend in sixth grade, when school let out for the summer, she told me she was going to write me. We lived 18 miles north of Satana, so I knew I was going to probably not see her until school started. So you know what I'd do? I'd beat the mailman to the mailbox. I'd be out there at that mailbox waiting, and I got to tell you, there were more times I was disappointed than the two times that I I found a letter from her. Apparently, she wasn't missing me as much as I was missing her. (laughs) But I'll tell you what, on those two letters, I read them over and over again, just wishing that they would go on, just hearing how she was doing through the summer. And such is the case with this letter to the church in Philippians, Paul brings it to an end. And I'm going to share with you from verses 19 through 23 this morning of chapter 4. Paul says, we already quoted this one, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brothers who are With me greet you, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. I uh, sometimes look for things in, in Scripture that most people don't look for. And I guess one of them is because I went back to college after I'd already graduated once and and obtained an associate degree in journalism because I wanted to learn how to write and how to write well. And, and because of that, I, I love the Apostle Paul's style, his style of writing. Um, these closing statements of this letter, Paul summarizes what he's tried to do and what he's trying to convey to this church in Philippi. And that's what a great writer does. When they get to the end of something, they will... They will summarize everything that they have said to that point in time and and drive the point home of what he's trying to convey. And I I think about that and I think, you know, Paul didn't have any formal education in how to write. And yet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God gave him that ability to convey what we needed to hear, what the church in Philippi needed to hear. And in these last five verses that we read from, Paul makes these four statements of summarization. There in verse number 19, he uses the word glory. Put that up there. I guess it's already there. According to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now that word glory is a Greek word that's taken from a a word pronounced doxa. Now the word doxa is, you, you never hear that word outside of church. And some of you who have perhaps grown up in more liturgical churches than what we are, many churches conclude their their sermons or their services with what is called the doxology. I I was going to sing it, but I can't remember it right now. From whom all blessings flow. Yeah, there you go. You've heard it. Yeah, you're all humming it. And some of you aren't humming it very well either. But but it's a it's a churchy word. And, and you know you very often don't hear this word outside of the church, uh, but it refers to one's own fame or or one's own renown or or honor or 
or that which accompanies greatness, glory. Now, the way Paul uses it here in verse number 19, he says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He's saying to them and saying to us today, whatever the circumstance that you find yourself in, whether it's demotion or promotion, whether it's sickness or health, whether it's triumph or tragedy, give God the glory that he deserves. He's worthy of our praise and our adoration. He's worthy of our the glory that we can give to them. And only then when we seek to honor him instead of what's going on in our own lives will we experience the joy of the Lord. Paul comes back to this main theme that he is, he's been hammering home for the better part of, of four chapters. Finding joy, whatever it is that you're going through. Whatever it is that you're dealing with, let your joy have its source in the Lord. You know, there are a lot of things in our lives that we think bring us joy. But what I found about those things is they never last. They may be a temporary joy and we're thankful for them and we're grateful for them. But the joy of the Lord isn't, isn't dependent upon things getting better or us being happy. The joy of the Lord can be present even in the midst of the worst sorrow you've ever experienced. The second thing, second statement that Paul makes in summarization of this great letter Found in verses, I think it's 20. Go to 20, Leonard, if you have that. And this is an amazing, oh, it's verse 22, excuse me. It said, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a fascinating statement to me. Um, he's, he's sending greetings to all the brethren who are with him. He's sending greetings to all the saints in the church in Philippi. And I believe that he's sending greetings to everyone that he's met who is a believer. And he's sending greetings to everyone whom he hasn't met that is a believer. And if that's true, that includes us. He's sending greetings to us. And in the midst of that greeting, he throws in this amazing statement, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, what does he mean? What does he mean? Is he, is he referring to the emperor's wife? Is he referring to the, uh, Nero's immediate family? Is he talking about his in-laws? Maybe, but I don't think so. My belief in the most reliable scholarship suggests that this phrase refers to what has become an incredibly large body of believers who served the Roman Emperor Nero. Now why is that so amazing? It's because that it indicates that the gospel, the good news of Jesus has flourished even in the midst of Paul's imprisonment. And it's taken place right under the emperor's nose who is the arch enemy of Christianity. The gospel has flourished. Now, in practical terms, here's what that looks like. Paul is saying, I believe, Nero, some of Nero's prison guards have gotten saved. As well as their families. The slaves who serve the inmates in the dungeon. Some of them have gotten saved. As I got thinking about it, I thought, you know what? Here's Paul chained to a Roman guard. I just wonder if that Roman guard got saved. After all, he was a captive audience. He had to listen to Paul. That's the equivalent, friends, in modern day terms of preaching the gospel in citadels of communism. Years ago, I had a missionary friend whose name was Bob Mackish. And he told me as a missionary to Soviet Russia, who that, at that time was still under communism, uh, to the degree that they were behind the Iron Curtain. When he would go somewhere in Russia to preach, he was warned not about preaching the gospel. 
He was warned that he may be mobbed because the people of Russia were so hungry for the good news of Jesus. Now, that's not what we heard. We heard that they would shut down anything, and I'm sure that there were some who were sent to to places for, uh, for imprisonment, for preaching the gospel. But he said in his situation, no matter where he went in Russia, that he would be, literally be mobbed by people wanting a Bible or wanting to hear the good news of Jesus. Let me tell you what, friends. The good news, the gospel of Jesus, is bigger than any political system. Uh, you know, we, we've had political systems in our world down through the years who wanted to destroy every fabric of this book. But this book has lived on for thousands of years. There's a reason for that because there is power in the word of God. The third statement that the apostle makes is found in verse 23. There he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Of all the doctrines that Paul talked about in Romans and to the church in Corinth and and, and the, to the church in Ephesus and Galatia, the most important doctrine in Paul's life was the doctrine of grace. Grace. Because Paul knew that the law came through Moses. You remember the story? Moses went up on Mount Sinai and, and God, with his, the finger of God, wrote on those tablets of stone what we know as the Ten Commandments, Right? And so those commandments were designed to lead the people of Israel for many, many years. And unfortunately, they kept adding to them. But what Paul figured out was after Jesus Christ came and ushered in the era of grace, he figured out that those who live under the law will eventually come to the grim realization of their inability to live up to all those laws. My goodness, nearly 700 laws is what the end of the New Testament came. They, they'd added to the 10 and made nearly 700. I don't know about you, but I couldn't even remember all 700, let alone try to live up to them. And so Paul looks at grace and he said, grace made it possible so that I didn't have to, I didn't have to live up to the law. I, Jesus gave us grace He empowered them to be the righteousness of God in Christ. As I got thinking about this week, that this week, I I thought, you know, what would it have been like after Judas had left the twelve, the Last Supper, and and there were eleven that remained, and before that next twenty-four hour period was over, their leader Jesus is hanging on a cross, dying. What would it have been like to have been one of those 11 remaining disciples? Do you suppose they might have thought, man, we've been duped. We've been duped into believing something that we now find out is a hoax. We thought Jesus was going to rule and reign and and rid us of Roman oppression. And now he's dead. Matter of fact, that's not just a conjecture. We know that that's true because in Acts chapter 6, verse number 3, I believe it is. Or I I guess it's John chapter 21, verse number 3. Peter, after Jesus' death, he said, guys, I'm going fishing. That was a statement that represented, I'm going to go back to what I was doing before I started following Jesus. Because following Jesus for the last three and a half years... Evidently, was a hoax. So I'm going to go back to what I used to do, to what, what I know. But then, Jesus rose from the dead. And he instructed Peter that because of grace, all of Peter's doubts could be forgiven. And even the purpose for which God had created Peter was still intact. Because Jesus said to Peter, I have a ministry for you, Peter. It's upon this rock that I will build my church. And Peter really became the instigator, the founder, if you will, 
of what we know today as being the early church. All because of grace. Had it been up to the law, Peter's life would have been over as we know it. But grace made such a difference. And that brings us to the fourth and last statement made by the Apostle Paul. And as you might have guessed, it's my favorite. He says in verse 23, The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Chapter 4, 1, we were told to stand firm in the Lord. In verse 4 of chapter 1, we were told to find our source of joy in Him. In verse 6, we were to let our requests be made known to God. In verse number 7, we are to rest in His peace. In verse 9, if we follow Paul's example of mentoring, we will find that the God of peace will be with us. Verse 13 We can do all things through him who strengthens us. In verse 18, he's pleased with our gifts that do his work, that accomplish his work. In verse 19, it's God who supplies our needs. And in verse 20, to him goes the glory forever and ever. But as I thought of this, and and keep in mind what the Lord, I believe, brought to my plate in in the preaching of this sermon series, at least this time, is this situation that I've been dealing with with what, my best friend for the last year and a half. Thinking that I'd blown it with him. Thinking that I'd blown it. Thinking that I'd messed up somewhere along the line. And now he's lost for all intents and purposes. That's where I take this one step further. That statement, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You know, Jesus can take us where no one else can. Jesus is with us in the prime of our lives. He's with us when the bad news comes from the doctor. He's with us when the x-rays come back positive. He's with us when we go to the hospital. He's with us when... The surgery has taken place and they come to tell the family they couldn't get it all. Man, he's taken us where no one else can. And he's saying through all of this, even even he's with us when the doctor tells us that we better get our affairs in order. And he's going to be there, friends, when that day comes when no one else but Jesus will usher us into the presence of the Father. Hallelujah. You know, there have been times in my life when I've had the privilege of presiding over memorial services of people who died as believers. And even though I knew that there were those present in their memorial services who were likely strangers to the faith, who were there only out of respect for the family of the deceased... I always found joy in making the statement of everyone who took the trouble to go to the cemetery for the internment of their loved one. And once at the cemetery, I would often make this statement. You are standing on holy ground. Now, some of those people who weren't firm in the faith or who weren't believers, they probably didn't understand, or maybe they even questioned what I meant by that statement. But our Lord Jesus has promised us that he's going to be with us. Even though we have died in the faith, he has promised us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse number 13, that he's going to come again and rapture those of us who are still alive, and the dead are going to be empowered To be raised from those graves. He's taking us where no one else can. And together, Paul concludes these words there in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That you may not grieve as others who have, as do others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, there it is. Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep.
Hallelujah. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. What a wonderful passage that is. And, and here's the reason why, and I'm going to try to put this all together. Why, at least this time, this sermon series has been so applicable in my own life. You know, you have all been very patient and very sympathetic with me over these this particularly this last year and a half when I've been dealing with this I'm even hesitant to call it a dispute but for lack of a better word it's been a dispute with with my former best friend the guy that I used to sing with travel and sing with for the Lord Jesus and the dispute basically is this there has been a question over the legitimacy of my faith in Christ Jay no longer believes in Jesus He, like Peter, believes that this whole thing was a hoax. That when you're dead, you're dead. And it's over. There's nothing to follow. What comes after we enter the grave? And honestly, there, Brenda can vouch for this. There has not been a day go by in my life without this situation being on my mind. It's been that troubling for me, that disturbing. Uh, grieving over the lostness of this once dynamic soul winner for the kingdom of God. One of the best friends in my life. And I still consider him a friend. I'm not so sure he, he does me any longer. But as I said, one of the main discussions that we keep coming back to over the course of this dispute for the last year and a half is his belief that when you're dead, you're dead. And the overriding thought that keeps coming to my mind is this. Can you even imagine the hopelessness of living a life without the Lord Jesus Christ? Because he's my source of hope. Paul says it right there. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And he says up there in verse number 13, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Having concluded this letter, I can imagine in my mind, I can picture the the Apostle Paul standing up from where he has been dictating this, this letter to possibly Epaphroditus who has been writing it down for him. And I, I can almost see him stand to his feet after he's concluded and, and place his arms around Epaphroditus and, and hug him. And thank him. And then, and then say a, a, a goodbye to him. And send him back to the church in Philippi with this letter. Paul knowing. This is probably the last time I'm ever going to see Epaphroditus. This is probably. This is probably it. This is probably the end of this relationship. And this is where this message that I prepared 25 or so years ago changed this past week when I put it together because I had all of this other stuff on my mind from this situation that I've been dealing with. And so as I thought about that in closing this sermon series, I was reminded of a goodbye that took place in my own life some 49 years ago this past New Year's Eve. Doesn't seem possible this 49 years. But the reason it came to my mind, it was because of a bookmark that I have in a Bible that was the very last Bible that my grandfather owned in his life. And that bookmark had been laminated by the Hutchinson News when they printed my grandfather's obituary. And it was a really cool deal. They sent one of those laminated obituaries to every one of us in the family. And I've kept it all these years in this last Bible 
that my grandfather owned. And whenever I see that bookmark in that Bible, I pause for a look at it. And not long ago, I, I saw it once again in some possessions of ours. And as has happened many times before, that Bible somehow, every time it would, if you just lay it down on the desk, it would fall open. And it would always fall open to the same place. And that was the last page of the book. It would always fall open to the last chapter, the last verses of the Revelation. And for some reason, as I thought of that, when I saw this bookmark again, it caused me to think of this letter to the Philippians from the Apostle Paul. And I think also because of this dispute that me and my good friend have been engaged in. And because of all that, it gripped me in a different way than it's ever gripped me before when it fell open to the last page of the New Testament. And here's what it says on the last page. It says in very bold print, the end of the New Testament. But then right below that are some handwritten words written by my grandfather. And it's just two words. It says, perhaps today. Perhaps today. And I couldn't help but think back to that time. Two days after Christmas, 1970. My mom and dad and I were in a church service on a Sunday evening at First Assembly of God in Garden City. And the phone rang and my mom was called to the phone and there she was told that my grandfather had fallen ill while they were driving home from his brother-in-law's memorial service in Anthony, Kansas. And we left that service to drive nearly 100 miles to Coldwater, Kansas. There he and my grandmother had pulled over to, had pulled off the road to a motel so that my grandmother could call emergency technicians to come to my grandfather's aid. When we got there, we found that they were waiting as my mom had requested that we didn't want my grandfather taken anywhere else but Garden City to to the hospital there. And so I've often wondered how this happened, but for some reason, the technician said, would you like to ride in the ambulance with your grandfather? Well, I'm a 14-year-old boy, and what 14-year-old boy is going to turn down an opportunity to ride in an emergency vehicle? And so I got to ride the hundred miles back to Garden City. But while I was riding, I mean, I'm 14 years old. I've been in church since the second week of my life, practically every Sunday. And so I started practicing what I had been taught. That if you pray the prayer of faith, the sick will be raised, right? And so I'm praying for my grandfather. I'll never forget it. I, I prayed over and over. He was, he was semi-conscious. He knew I was there. He would grip my hand, but he couldn't, he couldn't voice any words because he'd had this massive brain hemorrhage while he was driving and he, he was paralyzed. I didn't realize all this at the time, but he was paralyzed and couldn't speak to me. And, and so, I, I rode that hundred miles back to Garden City, and by the time I got to Garden City, I was fully convinced that God was going to heal my granddad. Fully convinced. Uh, my grandfather, who was always alert and energetic, then fell into a deep coma, and he remained in that coma for four days. And those four days were, for me, the most excruciating days of my young life to that point. Because I kept hearing my family say that the doctor had told them it was just a matter of time. I couldn't accept that. In my mind, in my young adolescent mind, I couldn't accept that my grandfather could die because I had prayed for him. And... I just knew that the God whom I served and had been taught about would do as I had asked him to do. So I was convinced the doctors were wrong. And I was convinced my grandfather was going to be healed. 
And then on Thursday evening, about three hours before the new year came, me and my family, we were at the hospital as we had been since, since we got there with my grandfather. Uh, we were in the waiting room and some of them were praying and some of them were hoping and some of us were just waiting. But during that time, there was always someone in the room with my grandfather. We, we'd kind of take turns as to who got to go in and go out. But they wouldn't allow me in there by myself. And so my grandma, she got to looking at me and knew that I wanted to be in there. So she took me by the hand and she took me into the room where my grandfather lay motionless with tubes protruding out of his mouth and his nose. And the only sign of life was the beep, beep, beep of the heart monitor. And I stood there and I surveyed that and I will never forget as long as I live. All of a sudden, granddad became kind of agitated. He started moving. And the next thing I saw was his hands go up in the air. And he began speaking in a language that I recognized because I'd heard him pray many times prior to that. It was his prayer language. And then the most amazing thing happened. He literally sat up in bed, praying his prayer language with his hands raised toward heaven. And my grandmother knew what was happening, but I didn't. And so she ushered me quickly out of the room, asked for my mom to come in. Mom went in there, and in just a few minutes, they came out and told me that granddad had passed. And I've told you this before, but I was angry. I instantly became angry with God, and I remained angry with God over that for 20 years. You see, what happened was that God answered my prayer. He had healed my grandfather so perfectly that the effects of this life would never have an effect on him ever again. But I wasn't old enough or mature enough as a 14-year-old to understand that. Matter of fact, I wasn't old enough or mature enough until I was 34 years old to understand that. And it was then that, you see, you say, well, 34 years old, why didn't you, why couldn't you figure it out by then? I'll tell you why I couldn't figure it out. Because good little church boys don't tell God that they're angry with him. He already knows, duh. <laughs> but when when it finally came to a boiling point, and I I, I was at a counselor, and the counselor pulled it out of me. He said, you're angry. I said, no, I'm not. He said, yes, you are. And I said, no, I'm not. He said, then why is the blood rushing to your cheek when I tell you that you're angry? So he sent me home to think about my anger for a while. And when I went back the next time, he said, did you figure out what you're angry about? And I said, yep. I'm angry that God took my grandfather when I asked God to heal him. Now, this counselor... He knew something. You see, he wanted to give me understanding from a human point of view. But when he sent me home to see what I was angry about, I began to talk to God about it. And it was as if God made me know in my spirit, why haven't you come to me with this before now? Let me explain why I took your grandfather. I did heal him just as you had asked me to do. I just healed him perfectly and you wanted him healed to where he would have been active and alert and in your life. Now the reason I tell you that much too lengthy story is for this reason. That was just the first of an experience like that. 14 years later, I'm sitting in St. Catherine Hospital room with my grandmother who is in a coma. I'm staying the night with her because the rest of the family had been staying and it was my turn. So I stayed with her. I was asleep in the recliner and I heard some shuffling going on. 
And it awakened me and I woke up to see my grandmother, what I thought was getting out of her hospital bed. For heaven's sake, she'd been in a coma for quite a while. I thought she was getting out of her hospital bed, but then I happened to notice when she got her foot over the edge of the bed, her hand shot up in the air and her prayer language was coming out of her mouth. And I ran out and I said, nurse, nurse, come in. There's something happening with my grandma. And we came back in and she was with Jesus. Three years ago, Brenda and I are sitting with my mom in Brookdale Liberal Springs. Mom's been in a coma for 24, 36 hours. Some of you had come to see her in that situation. And Brenda and I were sitting there about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, half asleep. And all of a sudden we heard that same shuffling going on. Something coming out of, uh, out of mom that we'd not heard for a long period of time. And so I went over to her bed and her hand was kind of like this. And I thought she was reaching for me. And I reached my hand to take hers, and all of a sudden I noticed her eyes. Her eyes were literally glistening. And it soon occurred to me, she wasn't wanting my hand to take her. She wasn't even looking at me. She was looking at something way beyond where I was. And in just a couple of seconds, Jesus took my mom where no one else could take her. He took her into the presence of God the Father. So what does all of that have to do with this dispute? Well, this. Each of us here this morning, to those who may at some point in time listen to this message on our podcast, and particularly, I believe, To my dear lost friend in California, who I have reason to believe still listens to my messages on our Facebook page when they're posted. I have a message. And my message is this. You may want to believe that when you're dead, you're dead. But I've had glimpses from those who have died. Those glimpses were of what lay ahead of them at that moment when they breathed their last earthly breath. Don't try to tell me that there's nothing on the other side because it's what I witnessed and what I saw that gives me hope today that whether I die or whether I'm taken in the clouds of glory when Jesus returns, They're going to be there waiting for me. And Jesus is going to usher me into the presence of God the Father. He's going to usher me into the presence of my grandfather, my grandmother, my mother, Justin. And there's going to be a happy reunion take place. So don't tell me when you're dead, you're dead. When I die, I'm going to be more alive than I've ever been before. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And the reason I share that with you this morning is you may be here and you have not as of yet gained that confidence that comes from knowing Jesus. This is your opportunity. This is your opportunity. Only Jesus can take us from this life to the next one. And God forbid if anyone's life ends anytime soon that's here this morning. But I'm telling you, if you aren't sure of your status with Jesus, today would be a great day to make that status certain. Worship team, would you come please? Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful for that blessed hope. Lord, my friends may tell me that I'm foolish the world may tell me that I'm crazy but I believe I believe that you can take me where no one else can and that's beyond the final enemy of death into the presence of life everlasting 
And this morning, Jesus, there may be someone in this room who have listened to these words that I've spoken this morning, this much too long story that I just shared with them. My prayer, ever since I put this message together, is that your Holy Spirit would already be drawing them, even before they came to this service this morning. That he would be drawing them to you, Jesus. And so when they heard the words that you laid upon my heart, that that would be the moment when they would say and feel compelled by the Holy Spirit to say yes to you. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I want to have that same blessed hope as Pastor Terry has described. I want to know that death is not the final chapter. I want to know that Jesus is waiting to take me where no one else can. With every head bowed, every eye closed this morning. You're here and you say, Pastor, I want that same assurance. I want that. Just raise your hand to Jesus real quickly. Yes, I see that hand. Thank you. I, any others anywhere? Lord Jesus, you know each heart. You know which ones of us possess that hope, which ones of us might not. You know. For those of us who profess that hope, our names are written down in unerasable ink in the Lamb's Book of Life. We're so grateful for that. But Lord, for those of us who don't have that hope, you're waiting with pen in hand, ready to pin their name because you love them so much. You love them so much. You gave your life for them. You shed your life blood for them. And you want to see them saved by grace. So God, you search each heart. And Lord, if for whatever reason they do not make that choice today, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to keep knocking on the door of their heart incessantly so that they will know you're not going to give up on them. And that someday, some moment soon, perhaps this afternoon or this evening or the coming week, as you persist in knocking at the door of their heart, that they will respond and ask you to come into their heart and be their Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, would you stand with me, please?